Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, in part 1 of a sermon series called Together, with this message from January 12th titled, It's a Big Deal. In one of uh, Aesop's fables, he describes an old man who had several quarrelsome sons, always fighting with one another. He had often, but to no avail, exhorted them to live together in harmony. As he was approaching death, the unity of his sons weighed heavily on his heart, so he summoned his sons around him to give them some parting advice. He ordered his servants to bring in a bundle of sticks wrapped together. To his eldest son, he commanded, break it. The son strained and strained, but with all his efforts was unable to break the bundle. Each son in turn tried, but none of them was successful. Then the fathers ordered the sons, untie the bundle and each of you take a stick. And when they had done so, he called out to them, now break, and each stick was easily broken. He went on to say, you see my meaning? Individually, you can easily be conquered, but together, you are invincible. Union gives strength. The unity of his followers was on the heart of Jesus before his crucifixion. In only a few hours, he'd be arrested. A terrible death would follow. Concerns of utmost importance to his life and mission, the very heart of his heart, crowded his thoughts and spilled from his lips. And he prayed to his father. Among those most critical concerns was the unity of his followers. In John 17, Jesus made this plea to his heavenly father. My prayer is not for those you gave me alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they be brought to complete unity. Jesus, knowing the end is near, prays one final time for his followers. And striking, isn't it, that he didn't pray for their success? He didn't pray for their safety or for their happiness, but he prayed for their unity. He prayed that they would love each other. With death breathing down his neck, it was unity that occupied the mind of Jesus. When he pictured in his mind the kind of life he envisioned and longed for his followers to live, it was a life of unity. You may ask, what's a big deal about unity? Let me remind you that unity was a big deal for Jesus. As he prayed for his disciples, he also prayed for those who would believe because of their teaching. That means us. In his last prayer, Jesus prayed that you and I be one. This is what makes it unity a big thing, a big deal. The Apostle Paul also expressed his desire that Christians live in unity and harmony. One of the main passages can be found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And here Paul writes, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with with peace. 
For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. This morning, I am beginning a sermon series which I have titled Together. And to set the stage for the series, I'm going to have us focus this morning on the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4. And then in these subsequent Sundays, we will explore together the seven foundational elements that knit our hearts together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Seven significant truths that will help us maintain the unity which is ours in Christ. In verses 1 and 3, Paul says... To preserve the unity of the spirit, we need to first of all understand its importance and then develop a godly character and then exert the necessary effort in order to maintain that unity which we have in Christ. And so the first thing I would have you uh, give your attention to this morning is to Paul's urgent plea. Verse one reads, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Let's look at some of the key words and phrases in this verse. The word therefore takes you back to all that Paul said in the previous chapters, in chapters 1 to 3. He has just spent those three chapters recounting the redemptive work of Christ. Now Paul says, in view of all that I have told you about God's grace and what, you have, what he has done for you, I want you to respond by living in an appropriate manner. The word, therefore, is the connective, joining the doctrinal with the application. Paul is not interested in just giving our, the- our theological truth for the cre- um, sake of increasing our head knowledge, because that is worthless to the individual unless it is applied in the person's life. The Christian life is not to be spent in the ivory tower, but on the streets of daily living. Paul then reminds them again that he is a prisoner of the Lord. This is not to shame them into living for Christ, but rather to demonstrate by his example that it is entirely possible and reasonable to live for Jesus Christ in all the circumstances of life that we find ourselves in. Paul, in fact, made a similar plea to the Philippians to practice what they had learned, what they had received, what they had heard and seen in him. And he wanted the Thessalonians to follow his example as well. Paul was in prison and being guarded by Roman soldiers. Yet his own perspective was that he was a prisoner of Christ because no jail could hold him unless Christ wanted him there. Paul was not upset about it, for he saw the hand of God at work in the situation and that the gospel of Jesus Christ was going forward because of it. Paul is just reminding them that walking worthy of God's calling is worth it, regardless of the circumstances encountered. And then Paul begs them to lead a life worthy of their calling. The Greek word which is translated as beg in this verse has much more intensity and feeling than a simple request. Paul is pleading with the Ephesian believers. He's imploring the Ephesian believers to live daily by God's standards. And this is what Paul means by walk in a worthy manner. So Paul is very urgent. He's very passionate about what he has to say. The word walking refers to the daily living. while the phrase worthy manner comes from a word that means to balance the scales. And I think John MacArthur helps us understand what this word worthy means um, as he writes these, as he writes this. 
He says the Greek word translated worthy has a root meaning of balancing the scales. What is on one side of the scale should be equal in weight to what is on the other side. By extension, the word came to be applied to anything that was expected to correspond to something else. A person worthy of his pay was one whose day's work corresponded to his day's wages. The believer who walks in a manner worthy of the calling with which he has been called is one whose daily living corresponds to his high position as a child of God and fellow heir with Jesus Christ. His practical living matches his spiritual position. So by using this word worthy, Paul is saying that the life lived by the professing believer must correspond to the great and high privilege given to him by being called of God and by God. The daily manner of living should correspond to the position given to him as a child of God and fellow heir of Jesus Christ. If you are familiar with the book of Ephesians, you can remember back in chapter one, Paul pointed out those who are true Christians that have become so because of God's grace extended to them. No one deserves salvation, but because of God's great love, he called people to himself and then redeemed them from their sin through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ on the cross. Our calling includes adoption as God's children, being forgiven our trans, 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 trespasses and sins, and being given an eternal inheritance with Christ, and being given the Holy Spirit as a pledge of God's faithful promises. So in general, that is how we are to live as Christians. That is what Paul is pleading for, that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And in verses two and three, he makes it even more specific. He says to live in a manner worthy of the calling of God will require certain characteristics in our lives. To the degree that these elements mark our daily living, we are living in a manner corresponding to what God has done for us. Our Christian character, Paul says, is to be marked by humility, by gentleness, patience, forbearance, and diligence. Again, listen to what he writes. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourself together with peace. It is no surprise that each of these characteristics are also mentioned or alluded to in the Beatitudes and as part of the fruit of the Spirit. These are marks of the believer in Jesus Christ. Humility is a first characteristic that demonstrates a worthy walk. And it corresponds, corresponds well with what Jesus meant by being poor in spirit in Matthew chapter 5. The word is a compound word which means to think or to judge with lowliness, hence lowliness of mind. Now, this does not mean to have low self-esteem in the sense of having no confidence, but it does mean not having pride. Paul may have coined this word for neither the Greeks nor the Romans had a word for humility. Like the ancient Greeks and Romans, our society gives honor and respect to the proud rather than the humble. The Greeks and Romans looked down on anyone that did not display pride and self-satisfaction. They considered humility an unnatural and pitiful weakness. No, to be humble does not mean that you look down on yourself. Henry Amiel put it well when he said, there are two sorts of pride. One in which we approve ourselves, the other in which we cannot accept ourselves. 
Humility requires that proper self-awareness. Paul clarified humility in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He wrote, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Humility comes from seeing yourself properly in right perspective. I don't think there is any question that pride is the greatest problem in the universe. It was a cause of Satan's fall. His heart was lifted up and he desired to gain the glory and praise that only belongs to God. And consequently, he took a great and eternal fall. The same is true for Adam and Eve. The snake said that if they ate fruit from the forbidden tree, it would make them like God, knowing good and evil. They thought they knew better than God. And so they disobeyed his command and they fell into sin. You and I deal with pride and wrestle with pride because we often compare ourselves to the wrong standard. We compare ourselves to other people. We can always find someone that we are better at in something. In addition, we exaggerate our good qualities and minimize our negatives while doing the opposite to those whom we compare ourselves. The standard for comparison is God, especially as he was revealed, especially as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Next to him, it does not take long to realize that we fall very, very short. Holiness is a standard and we are anything but that. Our relationship with God and our standing before him is dependent upon having the holiness of Christ imputed to us. Otherwise, we could never enter into God's presence. What happens to people who get a good glimpse of the holiness of God? We read that Daniel fell before the angel of the Lord, as did Ezekiel. Isaiah proclaimed himself to be a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. Peter tried to send Christ away, crying out to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Job repented in dust and ashes after God revealed himself to him. Humility is essential to being a Christian. Humility is essential to Christian unity. Humility is a first step in salvation because we are because to be able to place our faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice alone as payment for our sin demands that we, we no longer look to ourselves as our own savior. And we realize and recognize that we cannot earn salvation. And this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter five, verse three. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is a kingdom of God. Poor here doesn't mean destitute or without resources or recourse. A person with no option but to beg because there is nothing they can, they can offer to get what they need. They must rely totally on another's mercy and another's grace. Yes, that is exactly what God gives to the repentant sinner crying out for forgiveness based upon Christ's sacrifice. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The example of humility is seen in Christ. He left the glories of earth to become a man, a poor man, and then die in our place on the cross. It is seen in the gospel writers who diminish themselves in order to exalt Jesus. For example, John never even mentions his own name, but simply refers to himself in terms of the relationship that astounded him. He referred to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. Humility comes from seeing ourselves and God the way we really are. You and I have nothing to brag about when we are compared to in infinite perfection. Yet it is in recognition of our unimportance that we gain hope. 
As John Calvin said, the confession of our insignificance has its remedy in his mercy. And it was Martin Luther who said, God created the world out of nothing. And so long as we are nothing, God can make something out of us. And so Paul says, if you want to walk in in unity, you need to have humility a part of your life. He goes on to mention also the necessity of gentleness or meekness, which is also is one of the fruits of the spirit and is in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Our tendency is to associate this with weakness. But to be gentle or meek is not to be weak. Meekness or gentleness is to have great power, but that power is under control. For example, a gentle horse still has great power and a good horse still has its spirit, but that power is now directed by a rider. The Bible describes several individuals as meek, with Jesus and Moses being prime examples. Neither was weak. Moses was described as the meekest man in all the earth, yet Moses withstood Pharaoh face to face, and through him God devastated Egypt with the plagues, and then he led all the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. A weak man could not have done that. Moses had been trained to be an Egyptian king and had lived many years in the wilderness as a shepherd. Moses was a man's man both physically and intellectually. And Jesus... He had all the power of heaven at his disposal and at times displayed his power when he performed his various miracles, such as healing and casting out demons, turning water into wine, walking on water, instantaneously calming the sea or raising the dead. And Jesus had power at his command. When he was arrested, he told Peter that he could call 12 legions of angels to his defense if he wanted them. Stop and think about that. If it only took two angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, what could 12,000 angels do? I would say that's a lot of power at the disposal of Jesus. Yet both Jesus and Moses submitted themselves to God the Father. They subjected their will to his will, and that is what meekness is all about. The meek person trusts God without resistance, submitting and doing what he says regardless of circumstances or outcome. They rely on God's goodness and sovereignty to do so, what is right and best, not their own abilities. Gentleness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. God is in control, so we are not occupied with ourselves or our strength at all. And again, to walk in unity, we need to be clothed with humility, but also gentleness. And then Paul goes on to talk about patience. Patience is a natural outflow of humility and gentleness. The word patience means long-tempered and sometimes translated as long-suffering. It also is a fruit of the Spirit and shows up in the Beatitudes as a godly reaction to persecution. Because the idea here is not calmly waiting for something good, but rather calmly enduring negative circumstances and never giving in to them. You and I can be patient as we wait for something good happening in our lives. But it's another thing to be patient when our circumstances are negative and causing us distress. <coughs> Excuse me. We see this patience in many of the godly men and women of Scripture. <clears throat> Noah building the ark in preparation for God's judgment on the earth while his neighbors mocked him. 
Moses enduring the hardships of Egypt bigotry against the Jews and, and years in exile. David, as he had to keep running from Saul while waiting the time he would become king. Paul patiently endured hardships, affliction, ridicule, and persecutions of all type in serving Christ. Again, this was a character trait that the Greeks did not value. Aristotle is reported to have said that the greatest Greek virtue was a refusal to tolerate any insult and the readiness to take revenge. God's people are to be different from the world. We are to be patient with all men. We leave revenge in God's hands and do not seek it ourselves. We accept and endure whatever comes without complaint or question, for we remember what Jesus endured for us, and we follow his example. As one writer put it, our perseverance and patience is equal to the pressure of the passing moment because it is rooted in that eternal order over which the passing moment has no power. As we live with eternity in view, we understand more clearly that anything we must endure here is only for a short time. But Paul isn't finished with the list of qualities and characteristics that we need to clothe ourselves with in order to walk in unity. He says that we need to make allowance for each other's faults because of our love. Some translations use the word forbearance. Forbearing love is merciful, kind, and forgiving. It puts up with the irritants of other people, the differences that we have with other people. As Peter reminds us, forbearing love covers a multitude of sins and keeps any of them from becoming any more known than necessary. The individual that is marked with forbearance continues to love when others would have given up. It is a reflection of the love that God has for us. Natural human love is intrinsically self-centered, striving to gain for itself. Well, God's love is other-centered and sacrificing itself for the good of others. True Christians learn to put up with one another. In seeking holiness, they strive to help one another overcome sin, but they do not approach each other with judgment and condemnation, but rather they seek to bear one another's burdens. And then finally, Paul mentions diligence. It takes hard work and vigilance to live the Christian life, for everything about it is contrary to our human nature. It goes contrary to, to what is within us. Christianity is not for the complacent. It's not for the lethargic or for the lazy. God did not save us so that we can sit back and relax. By his grace, he saved us for the purpose of good works, as he pointed out in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And one of those good works for which we are saved is being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. It will take hard work to be unified. It will take the characteristics Paul mentioned to be unified. But before we go on, I want to notice something very important about the unity of the spirit. What is it that we are called to do? Are we called to obtain the unity? Are we called to strive in order to get that unity? No, Paul says we are to preserve it. We are to maintain it. We, do, are, we are to strive to keep it. Unity already exists. It doesn't need to be created. It simply needs to be protected. There can be no unity of the Spirit unless the Holy Spirit has already brought it about. 
When Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 for his followers to be one and be perfected in unity, he was praying prior to the cross. That prayer was answered in the birth of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Every person who is saved has been baptized by one spirit into one body. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So unity within a community of believers and among other church already exists because of the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing individuals in each church into a personal relationship with God, with a living God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The unity already exists. It doesn't have to be manufactured, but the question is how to preserve that unity. And that is what Paul has addressed in these three verses. When we live as believers, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, we will have unity with one another and we will be at peace with one another. And by peace, I do not mean the absence of conflict, but the peace of reconciled relationships that are warm, that are deep, that are caring. In humility, we applaud and celebrate the giftedness and accomplishments of others. The goal is that we all together seek the exaltation of Christ and not the praise for ourselves. In gentleness and meekness, each of us submits our wills to the Father's will so that we are all striving toward the same thing. We walk with patience as we forbear with one another in love. We keep our focus on the primary issues and do not get sidetracked by minor issues. We seek to encourage one another in the faith, speaking words that edify rather than words that destroy. We work at all these things diligently, understanding the importance of keeping our relationships pure. The basis of unity in the church is the Holy Spirit. And as we walk worthy of our calling, we have that unity. Within the community of believers who are living in submission to the Holy Spirit, and where the fruit of the Spirit is abundant, unity will flourish. This is a goal Jesus Christ has for the body, the church. That is what he prayed for in asking that we would be perfected in unity. The huge redwood trees in California are considered the largest living things on earth and the tallest trees in the world. Some of them are over 300 feet high and over 2,500 years old. One would think that trees so large would have a tremendous root system reaching down hundreds of feet into the earth. However, the redwoods actually have a very shallow system of roots. And so it begs the question, how do they get so big and stand so long? Although it's a shallow root system, they all intertwine. They are locked to each other. So when the storms come and the winds blow, the redwoods stand. And it's because they don't stand alone for all the trees support and protect each other. And the same is true for the church. How will we stay strong, grow healthy, be able to withstand the storms? By working together, by living in harmony, by being unified. And in so doing, we will surely stand and we will flourish. Next week, as we continue our study in this series, we're going to begin by looking at the sevenfold um, foundational truths that Paul lays out in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. How these seven truths knit our hearts together in this unity, in this harmony that Paul writes about in the first three verses.
And so I encourage you to be a part of our series and uh, to be here next Sunday. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that are recorded from the lips of your Son, our Savior, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane for the unity of his followers. Father, we realize that for Jesus, it was a big deal. It was near his heart. And so it ought to be a big deal for us as well. And so, Father, I pray that we would clothe ourselves with these qualities that Paul outlined and that we would do all that we can to preserve the unity and the bond of peace, that we would walk worthy of our calling in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that as we stand together, we can be like those um, red oak trees of California, that we can be strong and that we, we can be united, that we can withstand whatever may come our way because our hearts and our lives are joined together, they're linked together, they're unified all because of your son, Jesus, and the salvation that he has given to us. And so I thank you, Father, for the reality of this truth and how it is and how it can continue to be lived out in our church fellowship. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, visit us at dbcswanriver.com. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, we are also available at anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or on your favorite podcast app.